0: European leaders have issued a new set of guidelines containing ten steps that women can take to prevent being raped by Muslims. Step one, pack your bags. Step two, move to Kansas. Step three, stop listening to European leaders. Step four, remember how you told your boyfriend you were a strong, independent woman and didn't want him acting all macho and protective? Tell him you were just kidding. Then make him dinner and have sex with him. Possibly that's steps five and six. Step seven, when you see a Muslim male approaching, tell him you love Allah, then drive your knee into his groin. Step eight, cover your hair with a headscarf and hide a 45 automatic in it. Step nine, get accepted to an American university so you can join a rape culture that everyone says is there but isn't instead of one that everyone says isn't there but really is. Step 10, convert to Islam. This won't actually stop you from getting raped, but you won't mind so much because you'll no longer be a free and equal human being. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> oh, man. The uh, aftermath of the sexual attacks in Cologne and really sexual attacks that are going on across Europe is obviously the lead story today in some of Hillary Clinton's emails. We know it's the lead story because the New York Times led with the death of David Bowie. And David Bowie, you know, rock star, 69, dies. That is of world importance because now if you want to hear Major Tom, you'll have to play it on your MP3 player instead of having David over your house. Uh, You know, he just can't be with you anymore. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Mathis is shaking his head. I'm not making fun of David Bowie for dying. (laughs) I understand that that's not funny. I'm simply saying this may not be the actual lead story. The Times leads with that and then goes into the next thing that takes up a lot of space on their front page. Is the Golden Globe Awards, and that was really important because one day someone might see one of the pictures that won the Golden Globe Awards. And I love that they gave. I love that they gave the prize to *The Martian* as the best comedy film of the year because this is, this is Hollywood, you know, where a man in a dress is a woman and Islam is the religion of peace and Barack Obama is a great president and the Martian is a comedy, I guess. I guess that's what we're they're telling And the other thing, and I have to admit, I don't get the New York Times Dead Tree Edition. I look at it on my iPad which is very expensive when I line my birdcage with it uh, because you <laughs> will lose, lose an iPad a day. But the other thing that, so I don't know what was on their paper front page, but on the iPad front page, is taken up with this whole thing about Sean Penn interviewing El Chapo, the murderous drug dealer, and I, you know, why that should be a surprise to anybody that Sean Penn is interviewing El Chapo. I mean, this is a guy who hangs out with murderers and dictators. That's who he hangs out with. But I, but the way I feel about him is he once tied Madonna to a chair. So there's no such thing as an all bad guy. You know, <laughs> something something to be said. About. All right. So today, what today, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to share with you what I think is a the solution to a riddle, and I'm serious about this, this is a riddle that has bothered me for years. This is something that I've asked myself for years. Why are smart people so stupid? Why are intellectuals so stupid? I know that sounds funny, but it really, it's not, I mean, obviously not all smart people are stupid. Ben Shapiro is smart. He told me he was smart. He, he has an honest face, you know, so I, I believe him. No, but seriously, I mean, you know, no, no kidding around. There are smart people who are smart, but there are a lot of intellectuals who are just incredibly stupid. I mean, these are guys with massive IQs, massive amounts of learning, and they say things they really, they take, have students in their professor, in their colleges, and they teach them things like, there's no such thing as absolute good or bad, and therefore it's absolutely wrong to be prejudiced against another society. And you go like, ah, stop saying those things because the stupid is killing me. You know, I mean, it's just incredible stupidity. Even the New York Times, I quoted this last week, the New York Times chief reviewer A.O. Scott, was making fun of intellectuals and professors as being incredibly stupid, and this is from the New York Times, which is the source, which is where intellectuals go to become stupid. The, the New York Times is like the the salt lick of stupidity. You know, I remember once I was in I was in Kenya, and there was this wonderful salt lick, which is where a big rock of salt comes out of the ground, and the animals gather in the evening to get their salt. And the New York Times is like that for stupidity. It's where intellectuals go as evening settles down over the terrain. It's where intellectuals go to to lick up their stupid. And even they are making fun of intellectuals. So why are intellectuals? And the reason this is important, the reason this is important is I really seriously feel like American intellectuals at this point in time are trying to get us killed. They are trying to get us killed in the same way that European intellectuals are getting Europeans killed. They're actually destroying Europe. And and the thing about it is, is it's so bad that we tend, the rest of us tend to ascribe evil motives to them. We think these are evil people trying to destroy us because we're Americans, because we're this. You know, I, I think you should never choose evil as an explanation where stupidity will do. And I actually think I have a reason why these guys are as stupid as they are. Before that, however, I have to just say one thing, which is this. I love football. What a great weekend for football. I mean, this is, I will get back to this in a minute, into the Muslim thing, but I just have to take one moment to say, this is my, football is the last sport I pay attention to. I used to be an enormous baseball fan. I hate to say this. I know it dates me terribly. When I was a kid, a baseball game was two hours long. I mean, that was before, you know, the endless, endless commercials and the pitching changes and all this stuff. I once had a letter published in Uh, Sports Illustrated saying they should only be allowed to change the pitcher once because it just slows the game too much. But football remains, each game remains important, and it remains a game of courage and heart. I mean, that's the thing about it. You know, Donald Trump was saying, uh, the NFL is soft the way America is soft. And I know why he's saying, I get that. I get that. I get all this stuff about protecting them and you can only hit here and you can't hit there. And made it so. it's made it so easy to pass because you can't hit the guy while he's theoretically helpless and all this stuff. Still, you, you know, people are being rendered unconscious. You know, J.J. Watt, the Texas defender, who's the size of a building, was injured if you're in a game that can injure J.J. Watt, you're in a dangerous g- game, you know. And I just like it. I love it for the stories. I mean, I'm a culture vulture. I love watching Alex Smith, who who lost his job at with the 49ers for no other reason than Colin Kaepernick was a flashy... Uh, quarterback. And, and Alex Smith is just a workaday guy. And he got a concussion. And so they replaced him with Colin Kaepernick. Now Kaepernick is virtually out of the game. And Smith wins. He keeps winning every season. He wins. I just think he's an underrated guy. And it's very inspiring. Eric Berry, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, chief's uh, receiver, uh, had cancer. He comes back from cancer the same year he's in the Pro Bowl. I mean, this is stuff. You know, this is, man I, I talked to a brain surgeon once A literal brain surgeon, not just the guy who pretended to be a brain surgeon. But I got a brain surgeon at a party, and he told me, we were talking about sports, and he told me that the brain imitates actions that it watches. so and And it does it more in men than in women. When a man watches somebody throwing a pass, his brain sparks in all the ways that it would spark if he were, in fact, throwing a pass. So it is a little bit like art in the sense that, you know, it doesn't have the depth of a poem or the you know beauty of an opera, but it has an immediacy and an unpredictability that no art can match, and it... it causes you to experience in your head the courage and heart that these guys are going through, and it's inspiring. I just think it's in- incredibly inspiring. And this whole thing that we, we have to pay more attention to soccer, I mean, that's why we shouldn't pay attention to soccer. A game where you're not allowed to use the hands God gave you. I mean, God must watch, must watch soccer and think you know, I gave them two hands to throw a ball. What's wrong with them? You know, what does, what's happening down there? But we but we have to because the Europeans do it. And that that is what I'm going to be talking about. That's, that is the intellectual thing. We have to do it because it's, if Europe and the rest of the world is doing it and we're not, it must be we who are wrong. And why that should be true. You know, I mean, Plato asks the questions, who who is more wise, the many or the few? And it's the few, and we may be the wisest people around. Certainly, we're wise not to be watching this. All right, so listen, I'm reading The New York Times on Saturday. And usually I take Saturday off, but this time, like a fool, I read The New York Times. And here is the op-ed. We're talking about all these women who were attacked in Cologne, by, by Muslims, they were gang assaulted basically on New Year's Eve, there's a protest over the weekend and of course, the police who could do nothing to protect these women, who just sat around and twiddled their thumbs and then the media silenced that they wouldn't tell the story, suddenly for this demonstration, there's a demonstration protesting their treatment. Suddenly the police show up with water cannon. So, so I mean, it's like not just, it's not just they're letting this happen. It's like, if you protest, you're gone. All right. So now Saturday's New York times on the op-ed page, Anna, Sorbre, an opinion editor on a German paper, writes a column called Germany's Post-Cologne Hysteria. Okay? This is a word you couldn't even use because it comes from, uh, you know, the, a, the word for the womb, you know, and it was meant, that was the way women acted. You couldn't even use it. But in this case, it's hysteria. On New Year's Eve, hundreds of men gathered in the plaza at the main train station in Cologne, Germany, groping and robbing scores of women as they passed by. Despite the fact that the attacks occurred in the center of Germany's fourth largest city, it took days for the news to surface. in the national media, even stranger, the police seem to know little about the tax. How strange, how strange this is, how odd. She goes on for paragraph after paragraph, just barely admitting that immigrants had something to do with, and I don't think the word Islam or Muslim ever appears in this because that's who these guys are, all right? So she goes on to say, the right blamed the immigrants. It's, it's a, an argument, right? The right blamed the immigrants and the left blamed organized crime. Even she admits there's no evidence that organized crime was involved in this at all. And she says, this is her her basic conclusion, in other words, precisely when the country needs a cool-headed conversation about the impact of Germany's new refugee population, we're playing musical chairs. Everybody runs for a seat to the left and to the right, afraid to remain in the middle, apparently undecided. The irony is that the Cologne attacks, by highlighting the issue of refugees and their culture, raise an incredibly important question, and at the same time, make it almost impossible to have a reasonable conversation about it. Integration will fail, she says, if Germany cannot resolve the tension between its secular liberal laws and culture and the patriarchal—I'm sorry, its secular liberal laws and culture— and the patriarchal and religiously conservative worldviews that some refugees bring with them. Which refugees? (laughs) No idea. But some of them seem to have these conservative, patriarchal, religious, I don't know, you know. How can you tell one religion from another? We cannot avoid that question out of fear of feeding the far right, but integration will also fail if a full generation of refugees is demonized on arrival. All right point throughout is this is one more wave of immigration just like the others just like you know the the jews coming to america just like the mexicans coming in more there's no difference no difference it's just another you know group of people no clue why they should go around assaulting women it's just this patriarchal culture they have never mentioning the name of their religion on the front page of the same issue of the new york times is this story i think this was the lead story and again i'm looking at the ipad not the dead tree Pope Benedict's brother says he was unaware of abuse. The Reverend George Ratzinger, the elder brother of former Pope Benedict XVI, said in an interview published Sunday that he had no knowledge that young boys in an internationally known German church choir he directed for 30 years had suffered sexual abuse. I did not hear anything at all about sexual abuse, Father Ratzinger, 91, told the Bavarian Regional Newspaper. I was not aware that any sexual abuse was taking place at that time. Okay. So that's the that's the lead story. The lead story is this thing that took place I don't know how how many years ago but it's a long time ago decades ago. And the Times has been after Ratzinger. Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, one of the great, great theologians of our day. I mean, possibly the greatest theologian of our day. A a genius. I'm not a Catholic. I don't agree with everything he says, but he is a great genius and a writer of tremendous beauty and depth. And the Times has not been able to lay a glove on him. You know, they've got this gigantic canon of this real sexual abuse that took place in the Catholic Church, and they keep firing at him. Boom! And the ball just keeps zipping by his head because he didn't seem to do anything wrong. So now they got his brother, he's on the scene, maybe, you know, he didn't know anything, that's their lead story. That's the lead story on this day this, this stuff is happening in Europe. You know, a reporter, I, I was once approached by a reporter from The Times who wanted to interview me about something, and he said, I know you think The Times is Satan, and I said, I don't think it's Satan, I just think it's a crappy newspaper, you know, and, but I have to say, thinking back on it now, you know, there is a little bit of a similarity, because the one thing about Satan is, you know, they call Satan the father of lies, but Satan never lies outright. He never says black is white or anything like that. What he says is, he tells the truth. I mean, he tells the truth, and he says, bow down to me, and I will give you kingdom. Bow down to him, he will give thee kingdoms. No question about it. He says, you know, eat the... Uh, you know the forbidden fruit, and you will not surely die. You don't surely die, right? The, right at that moment, he's always telling. Just like the New York Times, it's not that they lie; it's the way they set their story up. On the day when this is the big story, the story in Cologne is the big story. Their lead is Pope Benedict's brother denies that he had anything to do with a, a sexual mis, you know, mis uh, malfeasance that went on many years ago, and their op-ed, their big op-ed is you're just being hysterical about this whole thing. So this the narrative that they're delivering, okay, the narrative that they're delivering is this had nothing to do, these rapes that are going on, and this is not just Cologne, Germany. This is the rape of Europa, you know. Remember Europa, after whom Europe was named, was raped by Zeus. She was carried off, uh, and Zeus took the form of a bull and carried her away. These women are being raped, and the form of bull is the BS, you know, that they're, that they're spewing at these poor girls. The narrative is that has nothing to do with Islam, and if it does, if it does, you know, just in case you may be thinking that the real problem is all these religions have these sec- have sexual malfeasance. They're all just as guilty. They're all the same. And the reason is is that all religion is one to these guys because they have no religion, and all gods are the same. I'm sure you, some most of you must have heard of the story out of Wheaton College. This is this evangelical Christian college in it's near Chicago. It's in Illinois. And one of their first black professors, a woman named Larisha Hawkins, before the, the New Year, she put on a hijab. She put on a you know Muslim garb to express her solidarity with Islam. And she put out a Facebook posting saying, we worship the same God. Islam and Christianity worships the same God. And she was suspended, and I think she's going to be fired. And the left-wing press, NPR, a lot of the left-wing press is pretending that she has been suspended for wearing the hijab. There is nothing at Wheaton College about wearing the hijab. They don't care if you wear Muslim garb. But you sign a document saying that you will stick to the evangelical principles, and they have fired people for converting to Catholicism, and they are firing this woman for saying that we worship the same God. Well, the New York Times and the left would say, well, you know, it's all, all roads lead up the same mountain. Not true. It's not true. There's an article about this in the Wall Street Journal. It was all about, like, the Trinity and this kind of, you know, theological, uh, technological theological stuff. I don't care. That's not what it is. The Christian God summed up all his commandments by saying, love God, love your neighbor. Does the Muslim God do that? I don't think so. I don't think it does. James said, St. James said of the Christian God, God is love. Can Muslims say that? Would they say it? I don't think they would. The word love, I think, is mentioned once in the Quran. Uh, you know. John, the uh, in the Gospel of John, it says that God is the logos, the logic of the world, the, the way the world is made. God can be reasoned with, God can be understood through our reason. The Muslims openly do not believe that. And finally, the Christian God became flesh and entered this world of crap and blood and sex and sweat and death and died in humiliating fashion. And the Muslims not only don't think that that's God, they think it is reprehensible that you could even say that of God. Their God is incomprehensible, all-powerful, and irrational. He has nothing to do with our, you know, our image of God. None of this means, none of this means that there aren't good Muslim people. None of it means that there aren't bad Christian people, which is essentially the narrative that the press keeps selling. I'm not even saying there are more good Christian people than there are good Muslim people. But let me show you something. (laughs) You know, as part of this narrative, well, maybe I don't have time to go into that. Uh, Let me just show you these maps. All right, let me just show you these maps. Let me have the map of medieval christendom this is the map of medieval christendom if you can't see this it's because you haven't subscribed and if you haven't subscribed these poor illegal immigrants who are working on machines here with their little thin horribly starved fingers it's awful you know if you if you could if you subscribe you'd see these poor children and then you'd be happy that you subscribed to, just to feed them uh no but but the map basically just shows europe and parts of russia it's christendom it's christendom it's where you know, Christendom was. Obviously, Christendom spread to America and South America, so that would be part of it, too. Now, let's look at where women have rights today, where women have rights. Okay. Obviously, the same place. The lighter the color, uh, the the more it's green, yeah, the closer it is to green, the more rights women have. Okay. Christendom. It's Christendom. Look at it. It's just the same place, including America, and the yellow places are better than the red places, and the red places are all the places where that are not Christendom. Okay. Now, one more. Take a look at the map where homosexuals have rights, where gay people have rights. That's that's in blue. Same deal. It's Christendom. Okay. So when you have these guys who get up, you know, let play that Dan Savage tape. This is the, Dan Savage, the gay activist who went out and what was supposed to be a uh, campaign against bullying, and he was really the bully. He went to this high school, and this is what he says. We can learn to ignore the bull... In the Bible about gay people the same way the same way we have learned to ignore the bull in the Bible about shellfish about slavery about dinner about farming about menstruation about virginity about masturbation we ignore bullshit in the Bible about all sorts of things the Bible is a radically pro-slavery dialogue. If the Bible is a radically pro-slavery document, go on Wikipedia, a left-wing outlet, and, and type in when was slavery uh, you know, abolished, when and where was slavery abolished, Christendom, Christendom right down the line until you get to the 20th century. The 20th century is where the first non-Christian nation, maybe Japan's gets in there somewhere. But mostly it is Christian nations abolishing slavery, including the United States, which fought a war in which white men died to set black men free. You know, this is, if if Christianity is such a pro-slavery document, how come every single abolitionist was motivated by faith in Christ, every single one? And it's true that slavers quoted the Bible, but every single guy who was a, a mainstream abolitionist was a deeply believing Christian. Okay, because these guys, these intellectuals, can't admit that everything they love is a gift from Christianity, every single thing is a gift from our religion, they can't see what's happening in Europe, which is a slow motion invasion of another religion. These guys, they, you can't assimilate people who don't want to assimilate. You can't just, you know, they're giving them classes like, here's a picture of a woman, don't rape it. You know, I mean, that's that's the classes they're giving. That ain't going to work. That's not what they believe. They don't believe the same things we believe. It's a different religion. And I would say it is not as good a religion in that it doesn't inspire the good things that our religion, Christianity, our main religion, inspires, you know. And this is, this when I say this is an invasion, it's not an invasion like the Germans marching into France, it's an invasion like the German tribes who spilled over the border in illegal immigration. The Romans said, you can't come in. They didn't care because they knew the Romans didn't have the armies to stop them. So the German savages came in and they basically took over Rome in this slow motion invasion. And this is happening now, you know. So so Europe is dying. And look, I think of, of conservative people who talk a lot. Who you know, conservative broadcasters. I may be the least hysterical conservative broadcaster, but Europe has been dead since the war. And when I say the war, what I mean is that big war that we called World War One and World War Two. That was really just one war, and it was an act of suicide. You know, I, I've gone into that before on our uh, our November 11th uh, podcast last week last year. That that was the end of Europe. What we're watching is the. We're watching the vermin essentially devouring a dead body. That's what we're seeing. So, you know, intellectuals have been in love with Europe forever, American intellectuals. The minute America broke off from Great Britain, there was this tremendous sense of inferiority, you know. And it made sense. We were a child nation, just like a child looks to his father, wants to be wants to walk like a grown-up, wants to be one of the big kids. It made sense, you know. They took Philip Freneau, who was a poet during the revolution and one of George Washington's big enemies, and they said, Oh, he's the Shakespeare of America. You know, I I, I may be the only person walking the earth who has read almost all of Philip Freneau. And he's like, you know, a third-rate bombastic poet. He's you know, he's, he's, there's nothing wrong. He's an interesting historical figure, but this was the Shakespeare of America. And and this has gone on through the centuries. I mean, remember Henry James, great American writer, went to England and became an English citizen. T.S. Eliot, great American poet, went to England, became an English subject, not an English citizen. Just like a child yearns to be a man, America yearned for this culture that when we were in our infancy was at its height. I mean, this was the greatest culture ever. This is the culture of Mozart. This is the culture of Shakespeare. This is the, there's never been a culture like Europe's, and we envied it, and we didn't have anything like it. We didn't have anything like it, and so it made sense for intellectuals to attach themselves to it. But this went on till it stopped making sense, because while a young man may emulate an older man, a man in his prime doesn't look to an old codger and think, yeah, I want to be decayed and dead like him, you know. I mean, there's a place when you are at your prime. And right now, America is approaching its prime, I think. I think. I don't think we've—a lot of people think we're past it. I know David Mamet thinks we're past it. I don't think so for a minute. I think we're approaching our prime. And Europe is dying, and when the left looks at Europe and says, "Ooh, I have an idea! I have an idea! You know, socialized health care—what a great idea! You know, let's take guns away." They do that in Australia. They do that in Europe. Why? You know, nobody in Europe has guns. Why should Americans have guns? They're looking. You know, the the government regulation of everything you say, of everything you do, of every business you start, your education—all of that. The left loves that. You know, here's play this thing from MSNBC. This is a guy making fun of people who are afraid of European Socialism. Western Europe, no, the horror, the horror. Well that old canard has been given new life as the rallying cry for the right wing against everything President Obama has tried to do. Healthcare, it's European Socialism. Regulate the banks, European Socialism. Lose the Bush tax cuts, European Socialism. Just what is it about European Socialism that is so bad? Brace yourselves. According to Thomas Gagan in his new book, Were You Born on the Wrong Continent? Actually, not much. In fact, if you got to know European socialism, you just might like it. So so you and I, and this is typical, by the way, I just picked that guy out of the hat, but but Bill Maher says this every week almost. You know, Obama and Hillary won't quite come out and say it, but Newsweek had that thing, we're all socialists now, and they're talking about Europe. When you say to them Socialism has destroyed every nation that it's touched. They go, well, what about Europe? Well, Europe's socialism was paid for because uh, by our military, by the fact that our military was protecting them, they spent their military budget on their socialism. It still has killed them. It takes 70 years for socialism to destroy a country, 70 years from the Russian Revolution to the fall of the Berlin Wall, 70 years from the end of, uh, from 1945 till the Muslim invasion of Europe. Now, it's over. Europe is over. And when they look at these things, universal health care, they're seeing the lesions on a corpse. And they're saying, oh, this is the future. This is the wave of the future. and it's not. It used to be. Europe used to be our future. Now it's, it's our future in the sense that it's death, you know. I mean, death is everybody's future. So why, are, why do we see this? And we're not so smart. Why do we see this? And intellectuals are so stupid. How can they look at Islam and say, this is not the problem? How can they look at it and say, oh, this just, we just need a better way of assimilating. It's our fault for not assimilating them. It's our fault for being mean to them. It's not their fault for having a philosophy that is completely wrong. During the break, I was having a conversation with a lawyer, and we were talking about juries, and the lawyer said, it's funny, everyone I've ever met who's been on a jury says juries are the stupidest people they've ever met. Every judge I've ever talked to says juries are wonderful, they always get it right. Now, I've only been on one jury, and my, I came away thinking, my God, these people are the stupidest people. I, I mean, this is they were so intransigent, but we came to the right decision. So how do you reconcile those two things, right? And it occurred to me that when I came in, this was a nothing case, it was a lawsuit, it was obviously. When I came in after the trial, I agreed with all the stupid people. And I call them stupid, really average intelligence people. That's as stupid, is as unfair. The smart people thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, there may be something, I don't know, You know, I want to hear some more testimony, I want to see this again. The The outcome was so obvious. It was a bogus lawsuit that never should have got to court. It was so obvious. And all the average intelligent people said, Yeah, it's obvious. It's a fraud. The smart people wanted to look. They wanted to pick it apart. They wanted to see what was wrong. That is what you call the wisdom of crowds. The wisdom of crowds is that intelligent people do find these nuances. And once in a blue moon, once in a blue moon, they may be right. Once in a blue moon, things are not what they seem. Once in a blue moon, you've come up with a theory of relativity, and you think, oh, wait, wait, time is relative. It didn't really look that way. You know, light, light is different than we thought it is. Space is different than what it looks like. 99% of the time, things are exactly the way they seem. Life is much less mysterious than we know. We look at it and think, hey, this must have been created. There's probably a god. Yeah you know, that's it. You know, and and the intellectualism, hmm, wait, just uh, let me stroke my chin on that for a minute. You look at Islam and you look at them attacking these women, it's in their philosophy. It is, you know, this, this is rape. We talked about rape last week as being a spiritual crime against women's uh, souls, essentially, but it's also a technique of invasion. It's a way of replacing the population with your your population. You know, in Bosnia, they raped women and kept them uh, chained up so they couldn't get abortions because they were replacing one population with another. That is why invaders rape. That is part of the instinct to rape. And, you know, when you look at Europe, when the, when the left, the, the stupid intellectuals of the left, the stupid smart people of the left, look at Europe and think they're seeing the future. They're seeing the future in the same way Hamlet saw the future when he looked at Yorick's skull. You know, we all die. Europe is dying. Europe is finished. This is not a good time to imitate them. This is a good time to turn to the native excellence of America, the youth, the vibrancy, the dynamism of America, and invest everything we've got in it and keep this invasion from coming here. All right, that's what I have to say. A lot of talking today, not a lot of sound. I've (laughs) run out of voice by the end of the week. Stuff I like this week. This week, last week I did musicals. This week I'm going to do a couple of great crime stories that I will bet you don't know about. All right, these are, this you know, as a crime writer, I have to say, one of the things I always hate is when people ask me, do you like this author, do you like that author? Because there are some great crime writers, especially in America right now, But there are a lot of bad ones, and a lot of the bad ones are on the bestseller list. And a lot of the bad ones get, you know, great articles written about them and all this. And I think, ah, there's so many good ones that you could be talking about, and they're always talking about, and I don't like to diss other writers. I don't like to diss my colleagues, you know, so I never want to be, I don't mind people asking me who I like, but I hate it when they ask me, do you like this guy? Okay. Here is a book that was made into a kind of mediocre film by Harold Ramis with John Cusack, but the novel is terrific. It's called The Ice Harvest by Scott Phillips, and if you saw the movie and thought it was okay, don't worry about it. Just read the book. It's a beautifully written, tough, hard-boiled story about a mob lawyer trying to get out of town in Wichita, Kansas on Christmas Eve, and it is just Filled with the kind of dialogue that you really, you know, you, uh, that harkens back to The Friends of Eddie Coyle, one of the great crime novels. If you've never read that crime novel, read that first, but I'm kind of assuming that people who love crime novels have read The Friends of Eddie Coyle. But if you haven't read The Ice Harvest by Scott Phillips, unfortunately, he's never written anything to match it. I don't know why, but that book is really terrific. I think it came out in around 2000. Definitely, if you like crime stories, definitely worth reading. That's it. I've ranted and raved enough. Now I'll be carried back to my padded cell where I'll remain in quiescence until tomorrow. We'll be back. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Thank you for listening.